So Etta gave up her room to this patient. And this man, they believe this was the person who broke in and started you know, using an ax and hacking away at this poor elderly woman. Welcome to the Humanist Hour, the official broadcast of the American Humanist Association. In this episode, hear the story of a free thought newspaper set up to combat the role churches played in our 19th century press. Find out how a free thought leader narrowly escaped assassination, and learn why a proper civics education is vital to maintaining the separation of church and state. We act sometimes as though we think women are new to the free thought movement, to atheist and humanist leadership. We're not. We've been here all along, and we've never gone away. Our history has just sat in boxes, disregarded where it hasn't been thrown away altogether. Our stories have gone untold. This week's guest, Vicki Stengel, did something about that. In her book, Etta Semple, Kansas Freethinker and Ideal Woman, she took that history out of the archives and made it live. Etta Semple was the founder of the Kansas Freethought Association and a leader of both that organization and the American Secular Union. She started the Freethought Idea newspaper to challenge the ideas of a nation and managed to do so so successfully that she received death threats and a probable attempt on her life. Semple is far too interesting to be lost to history. This week, Vicki Stengel joins Peggy Knutson to talk about the book and about what we need to know to protect Semple's legacy. Welcome to the Humanist Hour. I'm Peggy Knudsen, and I'm here with Vicki Stangle. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you. Well, I recently spoke with Susan Jacoby, and we touched briefly on the fact that Kansas at one time was a bastion of free thought, and that brings us to Vicki's book, Etta Semple, Kansas Freethinker and Ideal Woman. Vicki, tell us a little bit about Etta and what she brought to free thought in Kansas. Sure. Etta was actually born in Illinois, but made her way via Missouri and then into Kansas through marriage and came to this little community of Ottawa, Kansas in about 1887 when she married Matt Simple. And by this point in her life, Etta had already made the decision that something wasn't quite right with religion and institution of religion. And so she just was one of these people that always doubted from the time she was a small child. You know, she was this great skeptic. But, you know, there's so much social pressure to just go along with the herd. And she tried very hard to do that. But when she was 19, this great tragedy happened to her. She lost a fiancé in a railroad accident. And that was the first moment where she begins to think, you know, how could God take this great person? You know, if there is a good God, this is not a good thing to happen. So he can't be all-powerful, and he certainly can't be good. And so all of these things are swirling in her mind, but she has a very religious family, and she doesn't want to disappoint her mom and her dad. She was the baby of the family. And so she kind of plugged along, trying to make things work. 
But by the time she meets up with Matt Simple, he's quite a free thinker himself and also involved in just, you know, labor issues. And so it's a great marriage for both of them. She finally has a partner who really will support her throughout the rest of her life in free thought. And so she comes to Kansas and realizes that there are a, a great deal of people here publishing newspapers about free thought. And I don't think it ever entered her wildest imaginations that she would herself become a free thought editor of a newspaper. But in this little town of Ottawa, Kansas, there was a newspaper called the Free Thought Ideal, and it was delivered on the doorsteps as kind of a sample. And she thought it was a great newspaper, but the local mainstream paper, the Ottawa Herald, I think, didn't appreciate this Free Thought newspaper, and they said so. And so Etta thought she would write a letter to the editor or kind of a response to why she thought this paper was good and that the citizens ought to be able to judge for themselves whether or not this paper was a good thing to have. And they returned her letter unopened. So she was furious, and she felt censored. And not only that, but throughout the time she had been in Ottawa, she noticed that the newspapers were always putting full sermons in the paper or, you know, putting all kinds of events about religious activities going on. And she really felt that if they can have such a mouthpiece, why can't their meetings get in the paper? Why can't their points of view be in the paper? So she came to understand that the only way she was going to be able to talk to other people and come together around this idea of free thought was to publish their own newspaper for free thought. And so just by one of these quirky things, uh, the free thought ideal became available. The man that had owned it decided uh, he no longer wanted to continue publishing. So she decided to jump in and buy the paper. And for three years, from 1899 to 1901, she is publishing this very heretical free thought newspaper. And I guess I should give everybody a moment's pause here to explain, you know, what was her purpose? Why, what was free thought about? And her biggest issue was, of course, the separation of church and state. She believed that public officials especially were not upholding the First Amendment Establishment Clause, and in fact, were pushing the nation closer and closer towards a Christian theocracy. And was she seeing that happening in Kansas at the time? Completely. You know, all she had to do was <laughs> look at the blue laws, which prohibited people from traveling on Sundays, having their businesses opened on Sunday. You even had mayors telling citizens, you need to report on your neighbors if they're caught fishing or going to the theater because you're supposed to be in church. And so she really felt this was wrong, that government should not be interfering and telling people what they should be doing on Sundays, that that was upholding one established, you know, state-type church. And so she was very much against that. And there were also public officials that were always trying to take public money and kind of slide it over into religious uh, groups. So she was this watchdog looking at this. And she always talked about her fight being constitutional rights. 
the idea that you need to uphold the Constitution, the federal Constitution and the state Constitution that both prohibits, you know, funds being sl sliding over to religious activities. Hmm, it seems like everything old is new again. Oh, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> History tends to repeat itself, doesn't it? I think if Etta came back right now, you know, she would just say, what has happened? Nothing in a hundred years. Why are we still, you know, like on a, on a wheel, like a, a rat? Yeah, it's, it's very disappointing because, you know, as difficult as it is now to speak out as a person standing up for church state separation, it was very difficult for, for Etta because she lived in such a small town and you know, it was hard on her family, her, her child that she had there in Ottawa. But she just felt that she had to uphold this great principle because it was, after all, what she believed made America really the free democracy that we are. That if you have religion intermingling with government, you're going to have unstable governments, intolerance, and all kinds of other violence which was happening. You know, we saw as more immigrants, Catholics came to America, you know, there's a lot of, of discord in the public schools because the Catholics don't want to say the Protestant prayer. And that was another issue that she had with public education. You know, she was tired of religion now, the Protestant religion, setting up prayers in school, and she saw that as another great mission to try to keep the public schools secular the way they were intended to be. So that was another great fight, public schools, separation of church and state, blue laws. But it all comes down to, I think, this idea that we all should be able to believe what we want to believe or not believe. We should have freedom of conscience in America and we should not be penalized or discriminated against for it. And that's really what her newspaper was all about, you know, showcasing America in all its, you know, dark underside, because people didn't realize how bad it was for individuals who were not part of that majority thought or belief. And she was very good at showing what life was like for a dissenter. And, you know, one of my favorite things that she did in her newspapers, she had this Women in the Bible series that she took the idea from Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Because, of course, Elizabeth Cady Stanton published a whole work called The Woman's Bible, where she critiqued all the women in the Bible and decided, you know, are they being uplifted or are they being degraded? And I guess you can assume <laughs> what she discovered. And so Etta thought... I'll be like an educator. I will use my newspaper to educate everyone about the Constitution and about separation of church and state, but I may have to also delve into how religion has shaped us, and in fact, it has become a type of tool, a propaganda tool, to keep us in check, especially women's rights. And so she began to <laughs> critique Jezebel and, you know, Ruth and, uh, you know, it goes on and on. Samson and Delilah and who am I leaving out? Gosh, a Vishnu. Oh, no, not Vishnu. Vishta was her name. She was queen. And so she just shows again and again how these women are mistreated 
because they're standing either up for themselves they're, or they're worshiping the goddess and not the God, the Jehovah that they're supposed to be worshiping. And so she started receiving a lot of hate mail. So this was affecting her personal life, maybe in a negative way. Did she ever receive any threats? She did. Did she fear for her safety at times? You know, I her newspaper is one of these great documents where we get to see what life was really like in that period of the 19th century, the late 19th century. But she would now and then give personal stories about her life in the newspaper. Thank goodness, because I wouldn't really know what I know about Etta if she hadn't revealed some of her personal sentiments or stories. And she talks about... Within the newspaper. Within the newspaper. Because there's not a whole lot of information about Etta. There's not. Unfortunately, you know, if you're poor, you're a dissenter, you're considered an anarchist or radical, your papers are not saved. Uh, You don't have a family that's going to pass them down from generation to generation. Unfortunately, also, there was a great flood, apparently, by her home in Ottawa, destroying a lot of her own personal artifacts. You're listening to The Humanist Hour. I'm Stephanie Zavan. This week, Peggy Knudsen is speaking with Vicki Stengel about her book, Etta Semple, Kansas Freethinker and Ideal Woman. And so all we had were these three years of her newspapers that she herself donated to the Kansas State Historical Society. And thank goodness, because they are this treasure trove. And in these newspapers, she will often talk about what it was like for her son to go off to school and be mistreated because of his mother's actions, of something his mother has printed. Mm, Um, Once again... Everything old is new again. Yes. We have people experiencing that today. And there's nothing worse as a parent when you think about you've done something that has made it hard for your child, and yet you know that in your heart you're doing what's right and it shouldn't. he shouldn't be suffering or your child shouldn't suffer for this. So she didn't let it stop her, but I'm sure it made her sad And I know there were many days where she thought, how much longer can I go on with this? The newspaper never made a lot of money. It was an incredible amount of work. And on top of this, she has a lot of derision. She has support. She has people that send her letters of support. But one time she received a letter from Glenn Elder. I think it was Glenn Elder, Kansas. And they had received her letter and decided that she has to stop, and that if she doesn't stop, they're going to make sure she stops. And they basically were threatening her life. And she just said, I'm not going to stop. You know, they can't stop me. And so here she goes, you know, for three years, being in the public eye like this, and it's kind of in the eye of the storm. And it's ironic because it's not until later where there is actually a a, a very bizarre murder that takes place at her sanitarium that, but she was the target. You know, they just got the wrong room and the wrong person. Now let's talk about 
that for a moment. Okay. She, she had a hospital that, she did. um, that she, after the newspaper, her newspaper business, she was done with the newspaper right. business. Right. She opened her own very successful yes. business. And right. she was, it was very important to her that no one ever be turned away for treatment. Right. I mean, it didn't matter whether you could pay or not. I mean, and everyone knew this. There were people in town that had gone to other doctors, couldn't be healed, and they would sneak in through the back door because either they were ashamed because she was considered that, you know, you know, fanatical, extremist, radical woman, and they didn't want people to know. They were now seeking out her help, but she never turned anybody away, whether they could pay or not. And this gentleman had shown up, and it was pretty clear to her that he had female issues, that he did not like women, and she called him a sexual deviant. And so this was one time where she said he had to leave. And unfortunately, a patient came to the facility in 1905 who was too sick to climb the stairs to the patient rooms that were in this hospital. So Etta gave up her room to this patient. And this man... They believe this was the person who broke in and started, you know, using an axe and hacking away at this poor elderly woman. And she'll later die of her wounds in several days after this attack. But, of course, Etta is horrified. Uh, the whole town is horrified. They haven't caught this man. They, you know, they're terrified he's going to come back. And I know this also weighed on her that this woman died who came for help, who came to be healed. And probably, you know, died just because she was in Etta's room at the wrong time in the wrong place. This is an amazing story. And it's, it is. she was an amazing person that no one has really heard about. Right. You know, I think that's what happens to women who did not have a lot of money, who were very outspoken, who challenged one of the most taboo uh, institutions of society, which was the church. You know, they just get buried. They're not important. They were they were troublemakers, disturbed individuals that we don't need to study or learn about. And it is really disheartening to see someone who had done such great work politically. She had been very politically involved, too, who was healing people and kind of trying to figure out life. You know, like, why do we believe what we believe? And what if our belief systems are causing us to be ill? You know, what if we're, we're, we're in this great quandary where we know things are wrong? We're following this desert religion of cultures centuries ago. And it doesn't fit our life today. It, it doesn't make sense. But we tap it down and tap it down and pretend that it does. It's that cognitive dissonance. Right. And she just really felt... One of the reasons why so many people ended up coming to her was that their physical ailments really had a mental, you know, heart ailment to them, that they were really in their minds and their souls were tired and, and living lies that they didn't know how to get, get out of this, you know, perpetual motion of staying in this idea of, I believe this, but I really don't. I have to put up this front and be something that I'm not or think things that I really don't believe because 
this is the way society is. The pressure is so strong. And she wanted everyone to heal in their hearts and their minds and felt it was all. It's kind of this idea called new thought, where thoughts are real. Thoughts are, are actual real things. And so she used this idea with the assassination of William McKinley. She made this connection that, of course, this man shot McKinley. You know, your thoughts lead you down a dark path. If you feel you have no money anymore, nobody's listening to you, you're treated like a slave, your, your wages are low, your children are hungry. And so you start to think very deep things and dark things. And so your thoughts begin to get jumbled and you think, if I can do away with this man, it will end other people's suffering. And I can somehow change the world. So she made these remarks in her paper that, you know, where is the pity for all these people who are suffering under a very unfair system of, you know, we have in our nation uh, for paying and, and giving people decent wages and health care. And so she took a lot of heat for not just simply criticizing the, the assassination, even though she said very clearly, I don't condone what he did, but I understand why he did what he did. We have created these people in our society, you know, and he won't be probably the first uh, or the last. And even free thought editors criticized her. And, you know, free thinkers became suddenly the scapegoats now at the turn of the century because this man happened to be, you know, they said he was an anarchist. And who who else were anarchists? Well, they were free thinkers like Etta who didn't believe in family values and in the church and in God. And these people were destroying America. And they were the ones that should be shot in the street or strung up. And so things got very ugly and dark in 1900 and 1901. And she, I think that was one of the things that made her pause and step back and think, can I continue doing this newspaper with the, the way the country is now thinking about free thinkers. We, we went from being these people who are standing up for the Constitution, defending church-state separation, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and we're now the enemy. We're now people that need to be hunted down. And I think she just finally reached this point of realizing that she's tried to educate people, she's tried to show them the way, but as she noted, people have an easier time believing in supernatural, supernatural powers or supernatural things versus believing in themselves. And I think that was hard for her to recognize that she was not going to be able to truly get the public to see what she saw and understand the things the way she understood them. And so, with her husband having an illness for a while, and then this assassination on McKinley, I think she decided, I want to do something that makes me feel like I'm contributing in a positive way to life and society and community. And I'm a healer. I can do that. I can help people in that regard. So how did, how did the people of Ottawa receive this, the hospital and... How well, was she received as she 
changed her focus from fighting for church-state separation and then decided she wanted to help people. You know, it's odd because newspaper accounts, when she opened her sanitarium, they talked about how wonderful it was, the wood paneling, the -the state-of-the-art rooms. It had quite the grand opening, and people came from all over. They came not just from Kansas, but from surrounding states and as far away as Washington State and others. So the word was out that Etta really could heal people. And it was a different combination. You know, that was the time period where medicine was making this leap into new alternative-type medicines with magnetic healing and taking the waters. Yes. Uh, um, your diet. Yeah. Um, we'd, we would be a little bit of... A little bit of skeptical, skeptical about that today, right, definitely. Think, uh, but, you know, there was a little bit later, uh, Roosevelt in the Warm Springs. Right. And so maybe she was just ahead of her time <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I mean. For that. She said that she manipulated. It was kind of like a little bit of the. But she also, and this is the part that I always, I, I can't really explain it very well, so I'm sorry. That I'm, and our, our listeners will probably be quite skeptical. Right, and, and they're going to be and rolling they should their be. eyes, and that's okay. But, <laughs> this was um, Etta. <laughs> this was Etta. But uh, Etta, it was, it was claimed from the time she was a small child, she had this ability of clairvoyance where she could see pictures in her mind. And so she literally, according to accounts, could look at someone and see what was wrong with them, which is very handy. You can imagine if you're a healer. Uh, Or maybe trying to sell your healing. Right. But people swore by her. She never was without patience. I think she was a person of high integrity. And indeed, Etta herself came to her family in 1914 and said, I have pneumonia. I'm dying. I've seen it. My lungs are filling up and there's nothing that can be done. And so she planned out her entire funeral and told them, this is what I want done. Please do not read scripture at my funeral. You know, I want this poem, Scattering Seeds of Kindness Read. So whether we believe it or not, uh, (laughs) she, you know, she had always been so robust and so full of health and a big woman. You know, she's like six feet tall. This is a, a large woman. And so it was shocking to think that Etta Simple, after just five days, would be dead. And she was. So, you know, Etta's one of these very uh, complex... She's an enigma. enigma. (laughs) You know, feminist. I mean, just because you're, uh, you know, being an atheist does not necessarily make you a skeptic. But she lived in a a different era. Well, and it was Ed, a different time. And it did believe that, you know, atheism had two different strains to it, that there were the atheists who had started to embrace, you know, that there's some God out there. We just, you know, I have to be... A deist. Yes. More, that idea. Right. And she wanted to go the more secular idea and say, well, I'm open to possibilities, but I don't think at the end of the day, there is this afterlife. I think our good work is here, what we do here on earth. And that's a very humanistic point of it view. Is. That it's it it's humans that have to make the difference. 
And, you know, she, she was asked many times about, you know, obviously her, her beliefs. And she did finally, at one point I found in the newspapers where she said, I really can, you know, consider myself more agnostic. So, and I, I think that's true because Etta, she was never one of these people who thought, I know everything. I'm an expert. She was a self-taught person. She was always willing to listen to other people. But at the end of the day, she believed that all of us have to walk our own path. Make up our own mind. Make up our own mm -hmm. minds. We're individuals that the state or society should not be dictating what that must be. She felt very strongly about that. She didn't like to be told what to believe. No. No. And she didn't like... She didn't like religious intolerance either. She didn't want you to harm, you know, people that did have a faith. Like, let's not, let's not harm the Jewish population or let's not go after, I don't know, the, the Jehovah Witnesses over here. You know, she, she believed, if you want to believe it, that's your decision. But at the same time, she was going to try very hard to convince you why the faith was not, your faith was maybe wrong. So it's, you know, what she finally had to come to terms with was accepting the fact that there are people you can only take so far. And I think there are people that said, yes, maybe the Bible is not exactly perfect, that there are some doctrinal issues that we can't explain, but at the end of the day, they were too unable to move beyond that and embrace this world without a God in it. Because after all, she said, what has propelled us but the fear of death? And we want this afterlife. And what did free thought have to offer? It had to offer this idea of just make the most of your time while you're here. You know, your good deeds will live after you. That's just not enough for a lot of people. They want more. They want immortality. They want it to be something grander and larger. And she understood it. She didn't agree with it. And so she just tried to pat, she tried to show that she was going to do all she could to be a good person. But she wasn't doing it to get some kind of afterlife reward for it. So her motives were totally different. I, I have to say one thing that I used to laugh about that she talked about a lot. It just irritated her to no end about somebody who could go all through their life being this horrible, miserable criminal who had done despicable things. But if they just were saved and gave their life to Christ, they could just swing into Jesus' arms at the moment of death and be in heaven while she was going to roast in hell. <laughs> so many times she talked about this. So, Vicky, do you feel a connection <laughs> to Etta? Do you, yeah, do you feel like you're like her in some way? Well, I, I don't know if we brought this up before, but Etta was born in 1855, and I was born in 1955. I shouldn't give away my age. I sound so old now, but um, you know, it's weird to think that a hundred years later, looking back on my own childhood and immediately realizing that I wasn't connecting at all to what was being said about religion or God, and you don't really know what to do about it. You, you don't, you're confused, and Etta was confused. And you, you don't want to disappoint your family, your parents. So you just try to make it work, and that's what she did. So I see so many parallels with her life. And then 
you reach a point in your life where you've had enough and you know that you have to walk your own path. And she came to that and I came to that and you know, it's just what we have to do. And I don't know, when I look back on her life, it was so much harder. You know, there's no internet. Everything has to be typeset and written by hand. You're listening to The Humanist Hour. I'm Stephanie Zavan. This week, Peggy Knudsen is speaking with Vicki Stengel about her book, Etta Semple, Kansas Freethinker and Ideal Woman. She's, she's buying tons of books to learn information and wait on the mill to get articles or to get information. I mean, it had to be 300 times harder for her to do this newspaper that I, I feel for her. I know how arduous it really was just to do that one specific duty, to, to publish that newspaper. And I know she did many other things besides the newspaper, you know, taking care of her family, cooking, cleaning, traveling a little bit to go off to different political events. So I she do probably to her. she probably got to see Robert Ingersoll. He was in Kansas many times. Would you know, uh, I know that, that have been wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you know, George uh, is it George Charles Charles Robinson was a, a governor of Kansas, and he actually came to the first Kansas Free Thought Association meeting that she had organized, and he gave her tips. The governor, the governor, because mm-hmm. the governor happened to be. A, a liberal as well. And this was during that time when right. we thought it was really growing. Right. When you had all these great people. We had like John, Remsburg, John Remsburg, who was incredible. from Atchison and incredible was writer. a biblical skeptic. Yeah. And she's maybe a female counterpart. Right. And they knew each other. He sent articles for her newspaper. Uh, of course, she did correspond briefly with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She sent actually her book to to Etta and had it signed. And, you know, Etta was considered, she was considered to have one of the finest libraries in Kansas. She had an incredible amount of books. But she also walked, walked arm in arm at one point with Carrie Nation. They met up at some trade show. I, I think it was up in Kansas City. And she didn't always agree with the temperance movement because they had a very Christian lean yeah, to did. them. And that angered her, too, that women could be so gullible to think that, um, you know, if they can just convert their men to uh, believe in God, that their life would be so much better and uh, they would have more worth. And so she tried very hard to swing that around, but again, that was a hard issue for her. And, fem- and, and the suffrage movement, the same way. She sometimes felt that the suffragists were trying too hard to use this idea that women were loftier, that we were different from men, we were just more pure. And she said, no, you know, we're just human like men, and we should have the same rights as men and equal under the law. Just, that's that's all it is. Don't try to elevate women as something better or nobler. We're not. You know, we just need to be treated all the same. 
And, and that was also another message that, you know, divided the suffrage movement. So she talks about the suffrage movement. She talks about so many issues in her newspaper. And that's what's so wonderful about them, because you really see these teeming issues that we read about in history books right there in her newspaper. Can people find her newspaper? They can, and I, and I don't know yet if the Kansas State Historical Society has been able to put them on a digital uh, where you can just sit at your computer and download them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a digital uh, copy because uh, I actually had a friend make it for me. But you can contact the Kansas State Historical Society and find out if they have a way that you can have access to a newspaper's Maybe they're digital now. A couple years ago, they were not. I had to go into the library at Wichita State and have them actually send the information to the library, and I put it on the microfiche, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is not a fun way to... (laughs) There's a uh, time-consuming task right there. You just kind of get seasick, you know, rolling that that screen around. Now, so many of our listeners, if they're young, don't won't even know what microfish is. They're like, what are you talking about? Oh, my gosh. I think uh, I lost my my eyesight during that. Um, Speaking of young, (laughs) speaking of young listeners, so Vicki, you used to, you taught political science at Mm -hmm. one point, and um, I know that we've spoken that it has been a concern for you. that maybe some of our youth are not as well educated as they should be in matters of civics. Yes. I, mm. I just want to, to go off the subject of Edda mm-hmm. just a little bit, although she actually might um, pertain to this, and, and talk about what we can do and what is happening regarding civics education. Oh, my. I don't understand why political science civics, uh, American government, why it's not being required in high school, at least in Kansas. It's an elective, you know, um, and I find that appalling. I mean, I'm teaching, a, I was teaching a intro to government course at Wichita State, and I had students that really hadn't had a government book open since the ninth grade or eighth grade, and they don't even know there are two houses of Congress. Um, they don't know how many senators are in the Senate. It's such basic stuff that people who are naturalized become citizens must know. And so it is absolutely astounding how little uh, students do know about American government, about the Constitution, about the real political history. Uh, you can't watch Fox News and get your history and politics. That's just not going to cut it. You have to have an unbiased classroom where you can discuss all of these things openly and think them through and analyze them. And it was tough with this, with these students coming in because now they're arguing with me. You know, uh, there's no such thing as church-state separation. You've made that up. That principle isn't in the Constitution. Show me word for word where that's in the Constitution. And so, of course, you have to explain to them it's the First Amendment. It's the Establishment Clause. It's a principle. It's implied. There are implied powers in the Constitution. And then you have to show them the Danbury Baptist letter between Jefferson and the Danbury Baptist, that he made this 
metaphorical statement about keeping the wall high between separation of church and state, that that's really what the First Amendment Establishment Clause is about. It's a complex issue. Yes, it's an abstract issue. Mm -hmm. And so we all have little shorthand ways of explaining something complex, and that's what Jefferson was trying to do. And, you know, I would tell the students, look, um, the founders understood when they put this great document together, they couldn't think of everything. They couldn't possibly foresee all the things that were coming down that they might need to know and put in there. So they tried to make the Constitution flexible, you know, and we see that in things like the Necessary and Proper Clause, where you get to the end of Article 1, and I think it's section, uh, I'm going to blow this now, you know, section something 8, um, and at the very end it says, Congress shall have the power for all things necessary and proper to carry these, you know, things out. And that gives Congress a lot of power to, you know, do the things that we do. Like, there's nothing in the Constitution that says, you know, NASA should be something funded by the government. You know, where is that? Well, it's it's an ideal that we feel like it's necessary and it's proper to the very core of our American life, whether it's exploring science, all these things that make us stronger and, and propel our nation forward in the best of ways. Um, so the Constitution is this very flexible document, um, to the most part. There are things they didn't get right, we know that. Um, so I have to go through these things bit by bit with the students, and they don't like it. It's not what they they expect. They want it in black and white or it doesn't exist. I don't want to have to think this hard. What do you mean by implied powers? So even to have the students who have been homeschooled come in and say to me, our Constitution is a Christian document. It's based upon the Ten Commandments. And you just want to, you know, slap yourself and say, it's the Ten Amendments, not the Ten Commandments. This is not a moral code. This is a legal code. It's totally separate from religion and spiritual beliefs. This is simply a document on how to run our government and what the laws will do or won't do. That's all it is. How do you, how do you think that this maybe lack of knowledge is affecting our political process, especially with young people? I don't think they truly appreciate or can appreciate, you know, without knowing the history of Europe and the bloodiness of the Inquisitions and the other wars like the Hundred Years' War, England with the Tudors and the Stuarts and the violence of unstable governments all do to the the mixing of religion and, and state. Until they understand that history and then come into the colonies and see again that no matter how much the Puritans tried to set up a more theocratic state, which wasn't totally what they did, but they wanted to, um, we rejected that in 1787. We set that aside and said, no, we we are going to be not just tolerant. We're going to be an open society that says there will be no religious tests. There will be none. We will allow freedom of religion in America. Until they can appreciate 
how revolutionary it was to separate out church from state. I don't, I don't think they'll ever totally understand how precious that First Amendment protection is of Establishment Clause. And that's why we have people that just again and again trivialize uh, the founders and try to insert their religious views, you know, into our government. Well, and that First Amendment, truthfully, in all honesty, is why religion um, thrives in this country. Exactly. And Madison said that. You know, he says this in the Federalist Papers that, you know, let the free market reign with religion. It will grow exponentially if we just allow it a free reign. Don't let the government, don't make the government say you must believe this. You must worship this. Let them be like a free enterprise. And they will. They will grow. And he was absolutely right. Look at Europe where they still have in place in some, you know, countries where there is a state religion, you, you pay a tax for it, and their churches are empty. You know, they've moved more and more away from faith. But in America, you know, religion has thrived all because, as you say, we established freedom of religion, which means also you have the freedom from religion and the right not to believe. Well, you also have to work very hard to get people's um, bodies in the seats, <laughs> which puts money in the coffers. Right. It takes a lot of effort, but uh, I, I think that's actually added to it because it becomes something that's more competitive. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, we often wish with, you know, church state issues that we had the systems in place, the institutions in place and the money in place to get our message out in a broader, uh, scale than we do, you know, now. And, and we, and we're far more, we're, we're making strides in what we're trying to do, but They've got such a jump on us because back in the 1820s, 1830s, they knew they had lost, they'd lost the battle, that they were not going to get a Puritan state. And so they decided, but what we can do is try to convert everybody so we can establish colleges, hospitals, private institutions, and work our way into the system. And before you know it, we will be the power. Uh, and, I, and I'm channeling this to you now because I just finished a course. I was teaching a course, a continuing ed course, uh, about the separation of church and state. And this is from a book from, he's now deceased, uh, Forrest, and I, I, I kid you not, this is really his name, Forrest Church. And it's So Help Me God was the name of his book. And he talks about this great, cultural war that happened back at the turn of the, you know, in 1800, where are those French, uh, you know, enlightenment people going to win or are the British Anglophile Puritans going to win? Because English is about stability and about, you know, where we should be going in very rigid order and rules. But are we going to go towards those wild, you know, Frenchmen? And, we teetered, you know, we, we did get Jefferson, he won that, that, that presidential election. 
And it was smooth there for a while, but the undercurrent that started to happen was this reawakening of religion in America, and it did grain, gain an incredible amount of traction. And the freethinkers then come onto the scene in the 1870s, really, when it becomes the, you know, really bursts and bubbles up, was because there was this movement about God in the Constitution. This, it was called the NRA, the National Reform Association. Right. And they wanted to put in the preamble a statement that said, we are a God, uh, a nation worshiping God and believer in Jesus Christ. And all that was going to be in the preamble, and they wanted an amendment to the Constitution. And it failed. It failed repeatedly. But it worried freethinkers. It worried people from Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Mark Twain and all these people. To add a simple. To add a simple. That we have to stop this. Things are really getting out of hand. And I admire these people so much because I think what they did was they held the line. We might have flipped. We we might have become a very intolerant nation with a sort of semi-unrecognized state church. And in fact, Rob Boston in his book says that in that period after the Civil War to about 1890 or so, there really was a kind of Protestant theocracy in America. There really was. Mm -hmm. So their work, I think, you know, they, they held the dam. And here we are all these years later. And I feel that we're kind of there again, trying to hold we're still that. We're still holding the dam. Yes. yes. Well, Vicki, it has just been so great talking to you. I want to tell people again the name of your book, Etta Semple, Kansas Freethinker and Ideal Woman. Um, you can find it on Amazon, right. um, Barnes and Noble, uh-huh. uh, and it's Vicki Stangl, S-T-A-N-G-L. Etta Semple is E-T-T-A-S-E-M-P-L-E. So just look for her book. It's a wonderful book about a, a woman that people need to know more about. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Thank Vicki. You. I, I really, love it. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. As always, we value your feedback on the show. Have a comment or question for today's guests? Have a suggestion for a guest you'd like us to interview? Email us at humanisthour at americanhumanist.org or call our listener feedback line at 202 618 1371. Thank you again for listening to the Humanist Hour, the official broadcast of the American Humanist Association.